0: Hello and welcome to A Place for Truth, where we bring together Reformed pastors and theologians for conversations around today's cultural issues. Enjoy the
1: conversation. You have not come to a desert mountain. You have come to the
2: living God. You have come to the heavenly city.
0: All right, our topic tonight is what is the law and what is the gospel and how are they related and how are they distinct? Some of the things we want to cover tonight is what are the current dangers and fallacies in our contemporary Christian culture related to the use or the non-use of the law or related to easy summary statements about law and gospel, maybe harmed by some of those summary statements. So there's a number, probably this topic, even beyond some of our other ones, there is such a broad array of things that we can cover so i've got some framing questions and this is what i I say to everybody who's part of this the reason why we have these men as part of this is they come from different backgrounds but all these guys have years and years of pastoral and teaching experience so there's a lot of anecdotal advice a lot of these things that these truths are not just hypothetical but they've been tested over time so to that end um There's a lot of collective wisdom here. So I'd invite any of the speakers to wherever you want to take this tonight under the law and gospel, we're certainly welcome to do that. I realize it's obviously a huge category with a ton of contemporary relevance. So maybe just to start out, what is the law and how is it used in Scripture? And we say law and gospel. What is the law and how is it used in Scripture?
3: My question would be, come back to you, Eric. What do you mean by asking what is the law? There's many many responses to that, all biblical, and I think that what generally people who hold to a Lutheran type of law gospel position argue for is the law is, is kind of just the general category that entails commands, and the gospel is... That which entails indicatives, but no commands. That's more or less what Michael Horton has argued in various pieces, as well as others who have taken that, that position. So, and my response to that is, surely we can do a lot better than that. Because if we're going to use biblical categories, it seems to me that we have to begin with the categories that Paul deals with, And those categories that Paul deals with focus in on the Mosaic law, and then Paul does not juxtapose law and gospel in that kind of way. He does speak of being not under law, but under grace. And so I think that the categories are artificial in large measure and strained in many ways. And I understand what they're doing, but I have some significant problems with with what they're doing and where it, where it all goes. So that I would understand the whole framework in terms of covenants, and um, and the law covenant is one of those covenants. And then we have to think in terms of the new covenant, and they are not they are not juxtaposed in such a way that the law covenant commands and the and the new covenant doesn't command the gospel itself entails imperatives as well as indicatives so that's just a, how i would begin to frame the matter that i think that the way forward is is to think in terms of biblical theological categories rather than these supra historical Maybe systematic categories, but I'm not convinced that they're systematic categories necessarily either. There's a certain artificiality about.
4: I think uh, agree with all of that, Ardell. I think the problem with Luther is he was thinking as a theologian and not as an exegete first, and he was dealing with Rome's problems, their terrible soteriology, and so he constructed a particular means of attacking it by creating this law-gospel distinction, which, to my investigation, really began with him. Obviously, the terms didn't, but this construction, I believe, began with, as far as I can tell historically, began with with Luther. And for Luther, it's not just law was not with reference only to the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, but law-gospel were two different ways of assigning virtually every text of the Bible. Law, as Ardell said, is what God commands and requires; it's imperative. And gospel is never anything that's commanded; it's an indicative. I mean, and by the way, there are law and gospel in both testaments. The uh, law in the Old Testament would be the Ten Commandments. Law in the New Testament, Luther and Lutherans would say, would be things that Paul wrote when he required of the believers. For example, if you if you don't work, then you you don't eat, and you got to provide for your own. Those are commands. That's law. But in the Old Testament, when Jehovah says, I, the Lord, am one God, the Shema, that's that's indicative, that's gospel. But in the New Testament, uh, it would be in First Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins, buried, rose uh, third day according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, that's gospel. So he was trying to ward off a Roman Catholic, in particular, Roman Catholic attacks on gracious justification. And he was right, his impetus was right. In my view, though, as Ardell has said, I don't think the Bible sustains the distinction, the theological distinction. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't think the law-gospel distinction as it's generally presented is the best way of defending salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, which I fully affirm, and as all the other speakers fully affirm. And for some of the various reasons that various reasons that Ardell gave, in the Bible, law is filled with God's grace. I mean, the giving of the law was gracious. I mean, read Exodus 19. And the gospel includes commands, not meritorious commands, not commands for merit or performance before God or anything that would impress God or demand something of him. But nonetheless, I mean, the gospel itself necessitates belief. Well, that is is a command. And repentance, that's a command. So, You can't say that the gospel is only about what God declares and gives and doesn't require, and the law is only about what God requires and doesn't give as a gift. What I'm saying is it takes more theological and biblical and exegetical sophistication to understand this issue than Luther would have us believe.
0: Andrew, what would you say—I mean, in some ways, Luther's is is a—it's a helpful synopsis. That's how it's been used a lot. But what what is the danger of having that be the primary way that we look at the Christian life or the gospel? What are the pitfalls? And how do you see them working out today, maybe?
4: Think about, Eric, you have fine pasture. There In the church, there are implications. <laughs> Some people say, well, I'm not concerned about theology. I'm only concerned about practical things. But every theology and every theological view has practical and pastoral implications. The one here is that people tend to look at the law in Luther's understanding, is onerous and heavy. And if we can just get away from the law and get back to justification and trusting in Christ, I once read a Lutheran, a prominent Lutheran, say, you know, what is sanctification? He said, sanctification is getting used to your justification. Well, that's a clever answer, but that's not the answer that Paul the Apostle would have given. This view can, on the one hand, lead to antinomianism, at least a soft core antinomianism, such that once we've received the gospel, and by the way, I've been in Lutheran churches. I respect aspects of our Lutheran brothers and sisters. I mean, the Bible-believing ones, confessional ones. But if you've ever been in their churches, you may notice their sermons are, well, we Reformed people would think they're way too short, generally. <laughs> they're often about 10 or 15 minutes, and there's a warmth about them, but it's basically the message, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Delight that your sins are forgiven. Come to the sacrament to know your sins are forgiven. And of course, that is a biblical message, but that's not all the biblical message. So I think there's an imbalance. Of course, Lutherans, and I've read many of them, many of them, they will criticize us and say, "Well, basically, you Calvinists are trying to import work salvation," and that's not true if anybody understands Calvinism. So they tend to be largely, uh, largely antinomian, and therefore the gospel preaching is antinomian, and this is actually a real danger. In this, I, I would add one more thing quickly, uh, and that is: this uh, we've talked about Lutherans, but uh, certainly this law gospel distinction, uh, though not as prominent among Reformed people, certainly I, it must be fair and say that there's a lot of it in the in the Reformed tradition. Uh, but even those, many of those in the Reformed tradition, wouldn't wouldn't uh, argue the way that the Lutherans do. For one thing, Luther and Lutherans law gospel distinction tends to be a hermeneutic, a way of interpreting the Bible. I know virtually no Calvinist would say it's a hermeneutic. Even those that agree with it, but some of them would get very close, like uh, uh, Michael Horton and Scott Clark and others. Would ve- I think, in my reading of them, uh, would get very close to saying that? And I just think they're very mistaken about it.
1: I think Andrew's right that they actually do use it as a hermeneutic. They most certainly do use it as a hermeneutic. I mean, from a practical standpoint, when you think of of the third use of the law, that what what it amounts to is that Christ obviously fulfills the law. He obeyed perfectly. But what he does when he apprehends us is he takes us back to that law. That law is the, is the standard of perfect righteousness. Uh, if we're going to live righteous lives, we are to seek to obey those Ten Commandments. Now, obviously, what it looks like in each individual person's life is going to vary. Obviously, because of different circumstances, different relationship, but those those ten commandments are eternal, because they are the expression of God's own character. So, to the degree that we diminish that, we live impoverished Christian lives. What is the appeal for a
0: reformed person, um, not a Lutheran person, to all of a sudden fall into kind of a law gospel category? Does it make life easier for people? Does it does it make it more convenient?
3: Yeah, I think there's a certain simplicity about it that is appealing, so that to to hear commands, they process that as law. I agree fully with uh, these two gentlemen, because I believe it is a hermeneutic for many, many people in the reform camp. And so those who are in the pews, when they hear this, there's a certain appealing simplicity about it that lends a certain dimension to it that makes life easier so that they don't have to process the scriptures in the way that the scriptures are presented to us they process the scriptures through a law gospel grid and if it's command that's law if it's if it's promise in an in indicative that is gospel and it simplifies the whole matter of doctrine of sanctification the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. It just simplifies everything. But what it does as well is it deceives and seduces people into accepting, tolerating, and actually indulging sinfulness. So that if you engage someone who is sinning and who is who's been subjected to this kind of teaching, and you give them commands from the gospel, they're going to hear it and receive it as commands from the law. And they're going to say, don't you know that the law does not save? So that there's a rationalization that takes place in the mind. And we could we could name names, we could we could identify a number of people who have embraced this teaching and who have fallen into horrible sins and some prominent names of preachers that, uh, well, I'll just name one. I mean, why not? I mean, it's, he he was in the news uh, for a considerable amount of time, Tulian Chavigian. He preached this, and he preached himself right into some pretty grievous sins. I don't know, it very well may be uh, involved in a, In a case in um, in the East Coast, I don't know. There's a case right now that's uh, astonishing. But when I've seen that, when I've seen this going on in reformed people, that's usually what I see, and and that's usually the the endpoint of embracing that that teaching. So it's it lends a simplicity and it lends a consolation in sin, so that people are not hearing the gospel call. And if the gospel does not have imperatives to it, well, then what does it mean? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's an imperative.
4: Yeah, to, to, to our opponents on the law gospel, big law gospel distinction side, I would credit them with, they want to preserve the gratuitous, the gracious character of salvation. I would never fault them for that. But this is another example of sort of a truncated reading of the Bible. There, And all of us can be tempted to do this. We have to be very careful. They kind of produce what the old liberals would call canon within a canon. That is, you, you latch on to one important theme of the Bible and read everything else in terms of it. So they see the gospel as they define it, and everything else has to be, that's the preeminent thing. But the Bible itself won't let us do that. They have to do the hard theological work of working. And none of us all of us here believe in biblical inerrancy, but that doesn't mean there aren't apparent discrepancies with things that don't quite fit. I mean, the book of James is an obvious example. So what did Luther say? It's an epistle of straw. Get rid of it. It doesn't fit into my canon. But we as Reformed people, if we believe in the whole Scripture, we have to account for texts like that. And I, I, my view is we, we can account better for the entire range of, of the biblical teaching on this than the traditional law-gospel distinction. I think we can do a better job than that for some of the reasons that Ardell and David just gave.
0: Would you say gentlemen that to a certain degree a law gospel distinction like in this strong kind of hampers a person to actually be able to speak applicable truth into the lives of their parishioners or even the culture?
2: I, I think it works in both in both categories here. It works personally with with people that it can it can hold you back from calling them to obedience, faithfulness, in their personal lives, and their, but also in the wider culture and their wider Christian life, uh, I've seen that happen where people can compartmentalize their lives such that it doesn't matter. They have a secular way to live in a certain sense, where they don't need to engage the people around them with a call to righteousness, call to Christ, and they can focus everything in on sort of their their church life, and and that's where their focus be you know is and so that that a public proclamation of of the gospel of Christ of, of trying to call or culture in general to a certain standard of righteousness just doesn't happen. And it's deliberate. It's intentional that they they don't see that as important. And even evangelism is almost non existent, I know in some that hold to that view that they have relationships, they have friendships, the people they work with, there just doesn't seem to be a a concern to, to call them to the gospel. They're content sort of to have a life over there in the secular world, and then to have their, their life sort of in the church.
4: On a practical matter, it certainly seems that people that believe very strongly in this law-gospel distinction do not seem to be on the forefront of addressing these cultural issues on, uh, well, you know, whether it was the COVID, are we ever going to get over that talking about that right? But you know, the 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 whole COVID mandates and all of this restriction, they weren't on the forefront of talking about that. And they're sometimes they will sometimes speak against abortion, like Lutheran brothers, but on the whole, it's consistently speaking on these cultural issues and what's destroying the church and radical feminism and well, you know, all these other things. Generally the strong proponents of the law gospel distinction are also Pietists. That's just the way that it is, at least it seems to me.
1: What they've actually done is they've turned the gospel simply into a principle. Rather than recognizing that the gospel is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is actually reigning from heaven and is working to make all his enemies the footstool of his feet. He's bringing his kingdom currently. That truth is unavoidably tied to the sanctification of Christ's bride. So it's about the sanctification of the church, the sanctification of every individual Christian. And once you start moving the direction of simply using law and gospel as a principle by which you interpret scripture, now you've pushed the Christian faith and life pretty much into the conceptual, into, into the intellectual. And so there's no personal application. there's no recognition of a personal relationship to the Holy Spirit on an ongoing basis a recognizing that the Spirit of Truth is the spirit of holiness and, and you know we are to be involved in a vibrant relationship with the Spirit of God so that we would be changed to be like Christ who is the fulfillment of that law and that has application not only individually to us as Christians, but it has application to the church, the corporate body of Christ, not only in our local, local congregation, not only in our region, but in the nation and the whole world. One day, the knowledge of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's the ultimate promise. And, and once you start moving and thinking of the law and the gospel simply as principles of interpretation, you lose sight of all of that.
3: I fully agree with both what Dave and, and uh, Andrew have said here and to put it in another succinct way, all of those who have embraced the law gospel antithesis uh, and hermeneutic that I know of also embrace two kingdoms view which I which I think explains exactly what Dave and and Andrew have been um, speaking about there's a void a massive void and and it is a form of pietism uh, so that the whole of the church experience has to do with hearing the gospel and hearing the gospel has to do with hearing the indicatives the promises but nothing of nothing of the commands and they actually they actually will say now this this verse here this is a law it's it's a command and it, it's a very different way of reading the bible from the way that i read it
4: and Ardell, I'll tell you. And here's this is very practical, Eric. Uh, in my experience, they have a different view of pastoral preaching and pulpit ministry. At least uh, many of them do. They tend to be very suspicious of what they would call applicational or or exemplary preaching. They look at us and say, "Your preaching uh, is not as it should be. You're not exalting Christ. Your pre- preaching is not Christocentric enough." And so every every single passage, you have to bring out how uh, Christ. It shows how Christ died, how we're sinners, and Christ died, and He is our hope. Well, I think uh, we must be Christocentric, Christocentric, but we must remember that Jesus is not only uh, the priest; he's also a prophet and a king. So his his word is is authoritative in the Old and New Testaments. And I must say, if exemplary preaching is wrong, well, then we need to cut out a lot of the Old Testament because uh, there are examples in the Old Testament, uh, many examples. And there are new when when Paul is writing in the New Testament, he uses Old Testament examples in uh, take, well, just take Hebrews, uh, whoever the author of Hebrews is, Paul or whoever in Hebrews chapter 11, these great people of faith. That wasn't the kind of christ Christocentric preaching they're talking about. He's urging, have faith, have faith. These are examples to you. Have faith and persevere. Well, there's nothing whatsoever wrong with that kind of preaching. So I think preachers like that are very are very good at soothing people and reminding them of forgiveness, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need to do that. But a big part of biblical preaching is exhorting people and uh, showing how they need to live lives of faith and obedience, and I think that's often missing among those who have this strong law gospel distinction, or as Ardell puts it, I think even more correctly, the law gospel antithesis.
0: So, how would you answer? So, the charge that those that would really hold strongly to this, and I'm thinking, I'm um, just for example, I'll use, say, Michael Horton's kind of quasi Lutheran with reformed while well, claiming reformed theology but i remember listening to when i first started to understand reformed theology probably almost 20 years ago it was white horse inn that i was i was very heavily influenced by on cd at the time before podcasts i listened to everything i possibly could and it was during their crisis christianity series which was awesome but i remember after a while after about a year i realized wow what's everything sounds exactly the same every episode ends with the same Christ obeyed, we can't obey, he obeyed for us, be grateful. And soon I saw, wow, that same group is now justifying tacitly some wokeness. They're justifying churches shutting down and in the face of any sort of governmental opposition because it's it's not spiritual or it's law. So I, I realize we see some of the connections there. What would they say about us? Would they say that we are legalists by addressing like Andrew? Would they call you a legalist for saying that there's really practical preaching that we need to exhort people to? Or why would why, why would they be against what we're talking about right here?
4: Well, yes, they would. They, I mean, whether it's uh, me or I've seen them in print, what the the, the delightful, lovely things have said about Ardell and even Ian. That's what they will say. Um, legalist or moralist language like that. And um, I think the if you stress, and here's a good word, the regulatory character of Scripture. That's an important word. The gospel, I mean, the, the Word of God regulates our conduct. It doesn't only tell us what Christ has done, it tells us how to regulate our conduct properly. If that's the case, then we can't limit that just to the individual Christian or his individual life. And that's why so many of them are pietists Uh, Someone asked, by the way, I noticed in the questions, what is pietism? And Paul answered, Paul Murphy answered, but it's basically the idea that our Christian responsibility is kind of limited to our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with our family and maybe other believers in the church, and uh, not so much with uh, the world itself. But of course, if you you believe in this strong law-gospel antithesis, uh, then we've got to be very careful about how we use the law. And they will say that. They will warn. They will say, you must be very careful about how you're using the law. And they'll say that to me and others that would agree with our viewpoint. You're using the law unlawfully. You're demanding that people obey the law. And and some of them will even go so far as to say, well, the law, you can't really demand that you obey the law in the New Covenant era anyway. That's more of a dispensational idea. But they will at least warn about that. But I think the limitation, uh, the the unwillingness to stress the authority of the law of God, the Word of God in all of life— is due to their elevation of the gospel, particularly in the church. The gospel is way up here, and the law is way down here. The law is okay, it's good, but the gospel we have to exalt. But all I would say to that is uh, I would ask them to read uh, Psalm 119 very slowly and ask them if their spirituality is is greater than David's, um, or for that matter, Paul's, who said that the law is holy and just, righteous and good and spiritual. Uh, now, the problem, and we can get into this later, um, uh, Ardell's an exegete and can deal with all this. Nomos in the New Testament it has a number of different shades and uses. The law can be used for perverted purposes. Of course it can. The Pharisees did. But I don't think these people understand. The gospel can be used for per- – it, it, too, can be perverted. It, too, can be reduced. Uh, it, too, can be watered down. So we need to be in mind of both of those problems.
3: And they, in fact, I think, do reduce the gospel to indicatives. And that is a reduction of the gospel.
0: I would say probably for many of us, um, I suspect that many here did not come from maybe a reform background, but probably came from um, some sort of at least a dispensational light or even a heavy dispensational. How how is a dispensational uh, related to this, a dispensational way of thought? as it relates to law and gospel and where, where do you see them air? Is it related to this? And then also, how does that affect people? What is the negative effect that as we're have to think about having people kind of come out of that view?
1: Well, it's most certainly related to it because the whole law gospel distinction as it's practiced by the Lutherans and by Horton and others is a bifurcation between the old covenant and the new covenant. Once you start operating with those categories, it becomes very easy then to see, oh, the law, that's in the Old Covenant, but the gospel is in the New Covenant. That's classic dispensationalism. And that's
0: where you would see, David, something that says, like, as simplistic as it was growing up where God is angry in the Old Testament. Right. And he's happy and gracious. I know it sounds so irreverent and trite to say, but that was a classic statement that I grew up hearing a lot. Yes. Right?
1: Yes. It's, it's Marcionism. It's the ancient heresy of Marcionism. The, the Protestant liberals operated with the same hermeneutic. It's fundamentally an overlaying of Gnosticism over the biblical text. It's the separation of the physical from the spiritual. I think in terms of how do they move so easily into this situation where they don't want to say anything political. They don't want to address anything cultural. Well, that's in the physical realm, you see, Well, we're dealing with spiritual matters. It's an oversimplification of what Scripture teaches. It's a simple way to read the Bible, and it makes life a lot easier for you, you know, to adopt that kind of interpretation and adopt that way of living. But it, it just doesn't do justice to what the biblical writers wrote, you know, Paul and Peter both talk about obeying the gospel. They use that terminology. Paul tells us that that Christ was raised for the obedience of faith. Those things go together. And what you see from this, if you start tracing it out, what you begin to recognize is that the real problem is their doctrine of God. God is the creator who commands, who is the gracious one who commands. God's law is right there at the beginning, the creation of Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Well, that's a command. <laughs> and that was prior to sin. So, again, that law gospel hermeneutic, it it most certainly oversimplifies things, and it frees you from having to actually wrestle with the union of law and gospel.
3: Hebrews 3 and then moving on to into Hebrews four, is where preacher I call him the preacher is drawing upon Israel's history and dealing with the issue of rest, coming out of Psalm ninety five, and how David is reflecting upon upon these things with regard to whether or not it, you whether or not you treat it as Joshua or Jesus. Um, the King James says. Uh, if Jesus had given them rest, but we'll, we'll leave that for now. But but when you get into Hebrews 4, the preacher makes the point that Israel did not mix the gospel with faith. And I think the terminology there is gospel, as I recall. They did not mix it with faith. Well, what's the gospel? The gospel was, take the land. I'm giving you the land. Go into the land, which is at at the same time it entails earthly type but the type itself is pointing to the greater reality and the greater reality is the rest that it represents is the spiritual rest into which we ultimately are going to be brought um in the in the new heavens and the new earth and they disobeyed and here's another passage that I think the law, gospel, antithesis, hermeneutic gets wrong. Jesus is asked a couple of times by uh, individuals, once the rich and ruler, another one by uh, an, an, another uh, a Pharisee, I believe it was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is, you know the commandments. Do these things and you will live, he says. He actually says that and what does the law gospel antithesis do with that? They say Jesus was simply using the law in such a way as to push them to the brink of despair. And I say, well, that's a really odd way to push somebody to despair. Jesus is doing that? Because what does he do with the rich young ruler? The next thing he says is, you lack one thing, and here's one more thing you must do. Sell everything you have give to the poor, and then come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. So what does he do? He doesn't doesn't say, what you have to do is you have to believe in me. He doesn't say that. What you must do is you must sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. But of course, he was saying, you must trust me. It's just that he wasn't using the familiar words that the law gospel antithesis is looking for, namely, believe. He is instructing this young man to abandon his trust in his possessions, and to entrust himself fully to the one who's giving the command. But it is a command. It's not an indicative. And what does he do? He goes away sad. And I think that that's the way we need to read that passage. Jesus is not driving them to despair. He's, He's giving them the gospel that they were subjected to in the law, the law itself bespeaks gospel uh, promises. Do these things and you will live. A number of years ago, I purchased a book when I was in seminary by Ernest Kavan, The Grace of the Law. I mean, talk about an oxymoronic title in the face of the law gospel antithesis. And Kavan, he was unpacking how the gospel is embedded in the law and i think that he i think that that's right
1: well and it's very clear in in the giving of the law at mount sinai i am the lord your god who brought you out of egypt out of the house of slavery then god gives them the 10 commandments so he, he gives them the 10 commandments after he has already set them free from egypt which is obviously the type of salvation fulfilled by Christ. Again, this this kind of hermeneutic is a serious oversimplification and a, and a serious misreading of Scripture.
4: Ardell, I think another one of those texts, and those of you listening, that is is really misinterpreted and turned into some theoretical basis of justification is the text that presents great problems to those people, and that is Romans chapter 2, uh, where Paul says that those who, essentially saying those who live a righteous life Will, uh, will inherit eternal life, and uh, people are, you know, it is often said, well, he wasn't really saying that you have to obey the law in order to gain eternal life, but of course, if the law is interpreted properly, the law, of course, contains within it. Well, think only of Torah. I mean, people say, well, Torah was just all about, you know, living apart from uh, apart from Christ, the one who was to come, and the Messiah and grace. Well, right in the middle of the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Law is this rich uh, sacrificial system right in the middle of it. So the Old Testament Torah, by the way, which means instruction, it doesn't mean like heavy commands. Torah just means instruction or teaching. That's all it means. So if you asked a Jew, well, is there any grace in Torah? And he would say, well, 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 of course there is. I mean, grace is all through Torah. But uh, of course, the law gospel people don't use law in that sense. They don't use Torah in that sense. It has a theological meaning that's really not found in the Old Testament or, in my view, in the New Testament. But we, those of us who hold this view can much more easily explain texts like Romans 2 and the texts that Ardell said and a number of other biblical texts where it's very hard for those on the other side to explain them without turning them to a sort of a, as David said, a sort of theoretical abstraction, a theoretical way to gain eternal life. But they're not.
1: One of the things we need to do is, is pay attention to what Paul says the relationship between law and love is. The fulfillment of the law is love. Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Answered, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there is a second liken unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, that that's the reduction of the Ten Commandments. The first table of the law deals with our relationship to god the second table of the law deals with our relationship to our neighbor all of what we could do in life can be summarized as love for god love for neighbor and as i've told people over the years that means the primary thing that god is requiring us to do is to think is to be instructed by the torah to be instructed by the scriptures And to consider that every situation we would ever find ourselves in life is the fulfillment of the law in some way, shape, or form because it's an expression of our love for God or our love for our neighbor. And this is why really truly the goal of the Christian life is maturing so that you have wisdom to know how to act in any situation that you find yourself in but when you when you flatten things out according to this law or gospel distinction and hermeneutic you lose sight of that i want to hit a
0: question that just just came up here from lance i think it um I'm going to get a practical question related to this from the old testament is the sacrificial system identified in leviticus more about atoning for sins is it about atoning for sins or more about cleansing and making yourself presentable before God. While they are similar, I've heard it both ways.
4: Yeah, good question, one- Lance. I, I was going to answer else? it on the, on the side there. Uh, no, it's definitely a, a form of temporary atonement. I mean, the book of Hebrews points that the Christ is the supreme sacrifice toward which those were these temporary, sac- temporary sacrifices were pointing, but uh, it's definitely about atonement for sins. In fact, that very language is used, the day of atonement, uh, and the blood will make atonement for your soul. That isn't to say that it's final and definitive, but it's not simply making yourself presentable to God. Uh, it actually did, temporarily at least, wipe away sins. It carried them on. The sins were still carried on, if I can use this metaphor, carried on underneath because Christ had to completely and finally cleanse them. But uh, the sacrificial system was a form of atonement. There's no question about that.
0: Have you noticed the trend at all that sometimes the people who are most adamant about law and gospel distinctions, meaning we want to add no works to our justification and are the most adamant on, you know, it's about law, gospel, law, grace. Does that actually lead to another form of legalism? Meaning does it open the door for why are those same people, why do they – um follow the law of cultural legalism, meaning the law of the woke today, or a pharisaical legalism, meaning they add, you know, I think about maybe the stereotype of the independent fundamental Baptists, the sense of Old New Testament distinction, yet some of them tend to be the most legalistic people you can find as far as all these extra traditions that become law for the next generation. Why is that?
1: Because we can't we can't do without law. God created us in his image, and we we will not do without a law. And so if we, we're either going to be working at seeking to obey God's law, being filled by the Spirit, being, being nourished by the means of grace, being changed to be more like Christ, so that we love God's law and seek to put it into practice, or The only alternative is a law from man. That's it.
4: You know, David, that's so true. I was just, this is on my mind. Just read that in Mark 7. Jesus says that in Mark 7 to the Pharisees. He says, well, to you, he basically says, I'm paraphrasing, you get rid of the law of God so you can reinsert your own law. So law is inescapable. And that's why it was, whether it's, you know, fundamentalists, Baptists, or whether it's some Reformed people or Lutherans, if you get rid of the law of God, you don't get rid of law. The law is inescapable. You replace it with your own man-made. Uh, laws, and so then that's when people, if I can use the, tend to make up sin. They kind of invent things that are sinful that aren't sinful in the Bible, and that's that's particularly dangerous.
0: Would you say then that in a culture like ours today, that that is really greasing the skids for apostasy for the next generation? You know, for the last let's say hundred years, fifty years, there's been a general sense of you could have that distinction, and yet still get along in the American culture, which generally still followed a Ten Commandments ethic. Well, now, is it where the the law of the spirit of the age is going to be so much into the radical therapeutic, into the radical autonomous self, even into all of these woke virtues, social justice, messing with the creational norms of sexuality, Do you you see that if you have that strong of a, of a distinction, that the next generation would easily fall into the? I mean, a a pretty
1: quick apostasy or a functional apostasy. Absolutely. Again, you, you, if you're not going to seek to obey God's law, well, then you've got to go find that substitute. And what Andrew said about making up sins. Uh, that's exactly right. You you begin to you have to function with another standard of righteousness. So you you reduce things. You reduce the standard of holiness to what it is that you can easily achieve. These things are all of a piece. So it's to the degree that we deviate from Scripture in one area of our theology or one area of our walk with the Lord in our in our obedience that's going to have a ripple effect in other areas of our life. And that's why you you you, you will discover people coming to common beliefs or common practices from, a, from many different angles because life's holistic. It's all about God. And while we have di- distinct doctrines in Scripture, all those doctrines are organically united where you begin to Uh, Fall prey to false teaching on one doctrine, it's going to affect your understanding of the other doctrines, and that is going to have an effect on how you live your life. And I would also add this, we seek to justify ourselves. That's part of our sin. And the reason why Paul told Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely, was because life and doctrine are united. And we will find justification for how we live by finding doctrines in Scripture that really aren't there.
3: What you're, what you've there, Eric, I think is exactly right. Culture, which was significantly influenced and shaped in the West by the Gospel in previous generations, had a constraining impact upon people's behavior, and with the with the lack of that and the loss of that, that is that has changed. And so I think you're right about the next generation. But it also we need to think in terms of how the law gospel antithesis embraced uh, affects child rearing. It has a tremendous impact upon how you rear children. So dad, when he spanks, is is Moses, and then when he uh, somehow soothes. He's Jesus, but that's not an acceptable approach to child rearing whatsoever. The discipline of the rod is as much gospel as um, as are the promises, admonitions, rebukes uh, to children are pointing the way out unto eternal life. Those are the calls of the gospel. They're not the very core of the gospel, but they are the gospel's call. And that's the way we need to treat the commands of the old old covenant as well. They were the beck and call of God to do these things, and you will live. And the same thing is true today. We don't have any more power over our over ourselves with regard to justifying ourselves than the Israelites of old. We come to God. We come helplessly and bow before Him, as they had to. But to hear the commands. Do these things and you will live, and then treat them as as alien and foreign to the gospel, is is to mishear the whole of Scripture. It seems to me.
4: I'd like to throw something in, Eric, real quickly. I don't know if my colleagues will agree, but after looking at this issue for many years, I think that, particularly with the case of Luther and Lutheranism, though some Reformed also, the reason for one reason for this law gospel antithesis is just a. Just a, just an, uh, a, an obsession, uh, at least a, an overemphasis on soteriology. Uh, soteriology's salvation doctrine is vital. Um, the Bible's Bible is a great deal about salvation. But I think one reason I have to be a Calvinist, and if you read Calvinist writers, those of you will know it, the most important thing is not individual salvation. It's the glory of God. But, uh, and this is where both Lutheranism and some Reformed and the Roman Catholic Church are all the same. Rome is concerned with soteriology. Of course, with them, it's in the sacramental system of the church. And with Lutherans, it's in the law gospel antithesis and in, you know, trusting Christ, constantly trust Christ. But the, the fact that Jesus is Lord of all things and is the cosmic ruler and that the glory of God is at the center of our life and that there are things in the universe more important than my salvation, vital though it is, then you're going to come to a different conclusion than having to create this law gospel antithesis. And uh, that's, I think, one of the strengths of Calvinism. Not all Calvinists are perfect, By I'm, I'm a Calvinist and I'm sure not. So Calvinism can is not perfect. But I think that's one point that commends itself, that the most important truth that we can understand is the glory of God. Everything should be about the glory of God and not say the most important thing is individual soteriology, my salvation. That, I think, is how this got started. Remember that uh, for Luther, it was his own personal existential battle with, uh, how do I find a just God? Nothing wrong with that battle. I'm glad that he had that battle. I'm glad he came out on the right side. But that existential battle that he had is not the full range of what the Bible teaches.
2: This back to, uh, oh, I think David had commented and others around the idea that, we will always end up with some law in our lives, whether we reject the law of God. We will make up our own, as you said. But also, even I was going to say, even the antinomian is is in a certain sense a legalist. They have reduced everything down, in a sense, to themselves. They they become the arbiter individually of, of what is right. And so I, I think it's just unavoidable you're gonna you're gonna obey some law either the one you make up or the law you see in the mirror or the law of God
0: so now we we're transitioning this conversation some and we have just torn apart the hermeneutic for how to understand the Bible for a lot of you know pietists and Lutherans, even how many of us grew up so, What's the answer then? We've said, because law gospel is easy, right? I mean, that's a simple way to think about things. Does the Bible have a storyline? And is there a helpful, a better way to think about the Bible other than law gospel?
4: I think Ardell's right, and that's the doctrine of the covenant. And that's really the distinctive of Reformed theology. So I think justification, soteriology, everything should be understood. It's not a master principle. There's more in the Bible than covenant, but it is one of the main themes of the Bible. And I think if you understand the doctrine of the covenant properly, then uh, I think you'll tend to understand these issues properly. And then you won't set long gospel at, at odds with one another, but recognize that they're both facets of one overarching covenant of God with man. Uh, that I think is the way to solve this issue.
1: I couldn't agree more. You know, you've got to start where the Bible starts and the Bible starts with the doctrine of creation. The doctrine of God is creator before we can understand God the Redeemer, we have to understand God, the Creator. God institutes His covenant at creation. Jeremiah 33, Jeremiah 31, make it clear. Genesis 9, the covenant is with creation first. There's a covenant sign given to the created order, or of the created order, the rainbow, before there's a covenant sign given to God's redeemed people through Abraham. We have to pay attention to the sequential order in which God presents His revelation to us in the written text of Scripture. This is perhaps one of the most overlooked, important hermeneutical principles, and that is that the sequencing of things in Scripture is part of God's divine revelation. And we get so caught up in trying to talk about the doctrine uh, the, the creation days and how long they were. And we fail to recognize that the most important thing about the creation days is not their duration, how long they were, but rather that there's a distinction between the days. There's a day one, and then there's a day two, and then there's a day three. There's a sequential order that God presents That is a tremendously important point in terms of understanding the whole Christian faith, because what it's what it's telling us already is that there is a temporal progression to what God is doing in his creation. And so that's joined to his covenantal relationship with creation and then human beings, first and foremost, through Adam, who he commands. So there's law even before sin enters the created order. But God maintains that that relationship even despite Adam's sin and brings the promise of the destruction of the serpent. So the whole storyline of scripture is set up by what I would call the, the covenant kingdom motif. So that sets the table, sets the stage. And if you pay attention to the the primary mediators of the covenant in the old covenant era, they are Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And Jesus himself links himself to all of those covenant mediators and says he fulfills the covenant that was instituted with them. So it all hangs together.
3: To pick up on on both of these um, comments, I'm fully in agreement that our relationship with God is covenantal. And it is so because God himself is the covenant maker. And so, as has already been pointed out, I think David was pointing it out earlier with regard to the the giving of the, uh, the Decalogue. God called them out of Egypt, graciously brought them out of Egypt, and then he gives them the law and it's he who establishes the covenant and therefore the entire covenant itself is pointing us back to him and and the the law covenant given to given to the israelites was drawing them back to him and it never was uh it never was a um well, I, I, would, I would disagree with those who call it a covenant of works. Um, and it never was a a grounding of the, the the salvation or justification of anyone. Never was, never has been. And the old covenant itself makes that very clear. When you get into the land, don't think for your, to yourself, oh, it's because of our righteousness that we got here. No, it's not. I called you. And the covenant has promise. And stipulations, and though the though the word isn't used in the um, the initial chapters of Genesis, it certainly was a covenant, and God made a covenant with Adam, and He also gave stipulations, and the stipulations were not such that he that they were calling upon him to earn something, they were calling upon him to heed what he had already been given, um, and so. The same thing follows through in the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. It entails promise. It entails stipulations. But when you look at all of that through the lens of the law, gospel, hermeneutical antithesis, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to end up calling people deniers of sola fide, which, of course, is exactly what I've been called. If I deny sola fide, boy, that's a mystery to me. How? I think I'm affirming that every day.
0: Here's a question related to that. I think Aaron Carson was writing it. Ian mentioned, said something here about Exodus grace always precedes Exodus law. God never requires anything that he has not made provision for, for whether that Adam are in the garden or Christ on the cross. And there was a question there in there about how were they justified in the garden of Eden?
4: Well, I agree with uh, Ardell. I don't, agree with the language of covenant of works. Of course, different people may define it in different ways, but essentially, God is telling Adam, trust me and obey, trust and obey, sort of like the old simple gospel song, trust and obey. And frankly, um, though we don't want to be reductionistic, if you do want to summarize it, that's man's calling whenever his relationship to God is trust and obey, trust in me and obey. And of course, we can't. We broke God's law, therefore we stood under His righteous judgment, and therefore to be saved, we must, through the work of the Holy Spirit, turn to Christ and what He has done for us. And in union with Him, we're united with Him, and His faith and righteousness, His law-keeping life, then becomes ours. But this does not become a substitute for our substitute obedience, for our subsequent rather obedience, because that's what we're called to do. The covenant is about trusting and obeying. Uh, it's a lot simpler than some people make it, trying to work out sort of very careful transactions. It's trust and obedience. And we uh, we didn't trust. Think about the temptation to Eve. It wasn't just to disobey. It was to disbelieve God. Satan, the serpent, tempted her to disbelieve God. Now, God didn't mean what he said. He didn't say what you thought he said. Trust me. So she disbelieved, she distrusted, and she disobeyed, therefore. Therefore, when we come to Christ and he We gain his righteousness through union with him. Uh, We're called into a life of restored trust and obedience, not to merit salvation, but as a result of this covenant relationship.
0: So everything that we just described here, I don't think it's, it's, it's far off to say that in certain theological circles, even certain Reformed seminaries, any one of us that just agreed in part or in full with what's been said would be put on a heresy trial in some places, or lose our job. I realize what you have just stated, what we've just stated, we get, we can get accused of denying sola fide, which is a serious charge. How do you address the people that what we're saying is not a workspace salvation, is not meritorious works, and we are not heretics?
3: David mentioned or or maybe it was Andrew that mentioned Romans two. I, I guess it was Andrew that mentioned Romans two earlier. It is not those who ha- possess the law, but those who the doers of the law will be justified. Now, if we read that in a, if we read that within the framework of the law gospel antithesis, we're going to read that uh, as though Paul were talking about hypothetical justification. But I don't think that that's what Paul's talking about at all. Paul is not talking in Romans 2 about the grounding of our justification. He's talking about who will be justified. And the who that will be justified are those who do what God requires. So that the require what would our doing of what God requires is not in any sense at all the grounding of our standing acquitted before God. Our doing has to do with character. It has to do with who it is that, in the end, will stand acquitted in the last day. It is not those who are sexually immoral, who are liars, who are etc. Um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I mean, and, and you know the you know the uh, the statements from Revelation, for example. <clears throat> it's those who are the doers they will be the ones who will be justified and by the way it is a future tense there um and and that's another aspect that that factors into all of this the law the law gospel antithesis those who embrace it have no real categories for uh justification not yet um they have no kind they have no real categories for the already and the not yet so that the so that the our justification now is our receiving of the last day verdict well in advance of the last day. That's what the gospel is announcing. The gospel is announcing, and it was and it was so in the old covenant as well, and it was so all, all the way back to the garden, that the last day verdict was available to Adam from the beginning. Now it's a long ways off, temporarily speaking but that's that's what the gospel message really is about is the is the announcement of god's favor his verdict way in advance of the last day uh, so th- this this notion that somehow we are messing around with the gospel is a is a f- fundamental misunderstanding of the difference between the grounding of our salvation and the means by which the Lord saves us. The Lord saves us through means, through through calling, through baptism, through obedience, through believing. Um, and, and we must never confuse those two, but as long as we embrace a law gospel antithesis, we're going to hopelessly confuse those.
4: Eric, could I add also a little delicious irony here? Um, many of our many of our opponents uh, in saying that we deny justification by faith, we don't, uh, really are affirming justification by a knowledge of their interpretation of justification by faith. We don't believe that. We believe that people can be saved even if they don't understand justification by faith properly. And the, the Reformers were right. Faith is not the Roman Catholic complex Roman Catholic idea of some of its trust, some of its assent, some of its this or that. Faith is a wholehearted casting oneself on Christ, holding on to him. And, of course, faith itself is a gift of God, but holding on to Christ and Christ alone for salvation. That's what faith is. It's not having a theological understanding of the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith, important though it is. So that in itself becomes a sort of work whereas we believe in justification by faith. We don't believe in justification by knowledge. We believe in justification by faith. I think that's a point that needs to be understood in this context.
3: And to underscore and emphasize that point, I mean, Andrew's just made a very important point, a point that I make often. Because if, if our justification before God depends upon our getting the doctrine of justification per, perfectly right and articulated clear with clarity, then how many people in the, in the vast churches can do that? It's one thing for us who have been trained in, in the biblical studies and the theology of the text. It's one thing for us to do this, and we're arguing about it with others who are trained equally, right? We don't, we don't demand that everybody within our congregations can articulate the doctrine of justification by faith alone. With, with with fundamental clarity. We ask them, what is your hope and trust in life and death? And it's Christ.
1: It was B.B. Warfield who said, strictly speaking, we are not saved by faith. We are saved by Christ through faith. And that distinction is very important. Very important. Another way to think of this, And I've said this over many, many years. We are not saved by the correctness of our doctrine. We are saved by Christ to a correct doctrine. Getting your doctrine right or straight is a process of your sanctification. It's it's a process that, that begins when Christ apprehends you, takes hold of you has regenerated you, uh, causes you to see and know him as, as one of my friends years ago put it, to see Christ as believable and beautiful. I'm not trusting in my correct doctrine to save me. I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trusting that his word is true and he's true to his word. And because I am, he's changed me and brought me through a process of gradually getting my doctrine straight, and that won't end until the day I die, and I still won't have all my doctrine straight on the day the, of my death. But yes, this kind of thing can quickly become a, a form of works righteousness, where you begin to take pride in what you know, and and now all of a sudden you you have become exactly what the Pharisees were.
3: I just saw the name N.T. Wright splash across the chat area, and I'm going to make a statement here that I know will be trouble for some people, maybe not in here, but for the law gospel people. I regard N.T. Wright as a Christian brother. I disagree with N.T. Wright's formulations of some things, particularly Uh, how he formulates uh, imputation, justification. But because of what David just said, we are not saved by having our doctrine of justification perfectly adjusted to the scriptures. I'm thankful for the inconsistencies that save people. Inconsistencies in articulating their understanding of things because I have I'm still there with David. Uh, I'm growing, I'm maturing. My, my formulations of doctrine are a whole lot better than they were uh, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and I suspect that they're going to be better 10, 15 years from now if I live that long. We must not sink into that kind of thinking. and that is the kind of thinking that comes with that law gospel. Uh, antithetical hermeneutic
4: Eric I know we're kind of coming closer to the end so I just want to mention quickly to anyone who believes what we're saying is some new doctrine or some you know novel idea I put much earlier up in the chat um, feature on the right a link an Amazon link to a book by uh, Zwingli's successor in Zurich uh, Heinrich Bullinger. a wonderful little book he wrote in 15... 50, 60, called uh, Fountainhead of Federalism. Uh, well, actually, that's the title of the book. His little book is called The One Eternal Covenant, and it goes on. You know, the titles they wrote back then were like a full paragraph, right? But it begins The One Eternal Covenant. It's basically saying what we have said right here. It's a wonderful little book, just outstanding on the unity of God's covenantal purposes. So if if you get the idea that, well, you know, the guys over on Place for Truth are just passing some new idea Well, even if you disagree with it, I assure you it's not new. Read what uh, was said back in the 16th century by one of these great reformers.
3: If I may add another name to this, uh, the works of Richard Baxter have just been reprinted. I would encourage you to get a copy of those. Uh, Richard Baxter is a man who grappled with these issues. And he's he's been denounced by a whole lot of folks as though he as though he were denying sola fide. I don't think that Richard Baxter denied sola fide. He was grappling with these issues. But we have to believe, I believe, that what B.B. Warfield said is right. We need to embrace the, the, the reality, the truth, that doctrine uh, is is maturing. As we formulate things today, we can formulate things to better than Martin Luther and John Calvin could or even than than B.B. Warfield could there is progress of doctrine as he called it that we need to acknowledge and that and this gets back to to being humble acknowledging that we don't have it all together and that some others some others and in conversations like this may sharpen our understanding so that we begin to get these things formulated better we must not dismiss people out of hand as so often is done, as though, well, he's obviously denying sola fide, when no, what he might be doing or what she might be doing is um, is actually formulating these things in a far more biblical way than uh, many other people are doing.
4: Yeah, the Bible, that's true, Ardell. I think it's important to understand uh, the Bible is unchanged and unchanging, but theology and doctrine... Reflections on the Bible develop historically, Um, and I'm glad they do. I mean, I'm glad I understand humbly. I can say I understand the Trinity better than somebody in 80 90 did, the best Christian, not because I'm smarter, but because I have all of the benefit of these thoughtful men through history that reflected on this, and that's true of of all of these doctrines. doesn't mean all doctrinal development is good. A lot of it's bad, but uh, it's inescapable. And uh, therefore, we have to be willing to say, hey, we we don't understand everything.
1: Augustine and Anselm both affirmed that what the Christian has is faith in Christ seeking understanding. You you don't, your understanding is going to change. It's going to mature. You have to go through a temporal historical process of seeking to understand the faith once delivered unto the saints. This this gets at the distinction between the, the order of of being and the order of knowing. We have the revelation of God in the scriptures. There it is. But once you become a Christian, then you have to work at understanding that better and better. That's the process of wedded to your sanctification, of your growth in grace, you know, the Peter tells us that we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Paul tells us that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we we need not engage in these things out of fear or, or, or you know, uh, that we, you know, we're going to make a, a mortal mistake or, you know no christ has us if you're truly if you if you're truly trusting christ christ has you he will mature you and but maturation is exactly what we're called to do you know the the author of hebrews you know pressed the 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 recipients of that letter to mature and and the maturation was all about diving deeper into the doctrine of who christ is as lord and savior who he is as the great high priest, and the author of Hebrews connects this to Old Testament, quoting Jeremiah. So, digging into these things is is not a mere intellectual exercise. This is a very important point to make. It fundamentally it is not primarily an intellectual exercise. It's primarily a moral exercise, and the and the intellect is subordinated to the moral condition of our soul and that's why we have to watch not merely our doctrine carefully but our lives what kind of lives are we living gentlemen we
0: are almost at the end here uh we have just another minute for any last comments
2: i would just say pastorally as i think of the people in my church and that i minister to and responsible for i I want them I want them to to be able to distinguish well in their, their Christian lives between justification and sanctification, and yet never separate those two. And to understand that their joy depends upon that, of being able to distinguish and yet not separate, because their joy will be robbed from them if they begin to think that their ongoing obedience is the ground of their acceptance. Or their justification or or they think on the other hand that that because they've been saved at one point they can go on as they please uh, they'll be robbed of of joy in Christ they, they they won't know Christ well they they and so I want them to grasp both of those truths well to know that the ground of their their Redemption is in a sense outside of them and yet it automatically, in a sense, it, it immediately begins to work itself out in faithfulness, in in, in holiness, sanctification. They can't do without either one. God alone.
1: Come let us go up to Zion. Let us draw near to the
2: Lord our God. Let us go up to Zion. Let us draw near to
3: the bread.